This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card. Terminal cancer patients have anxiety that often doesn't respond to conventional therapy. What do you know about the potential to treat this with MDMA or ecstasy? You're listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. John Halpern, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School in Boston. Dr. Halpern is Associate Director of Substance Abuse Research at McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. He is part of a select group of researchers throughout the country looking into illicit drugs with legitimate medical uses. His work includes looking into giving MDMA to treat anxiety in patients with terminal illness and the use of LSD or psilocybin for cluster headaches. What's more, his projects have regulatory approval and some even have government funding. As he and his fellow researchers have said, Drugs with adverse potential in the wrong setting may still be worth looking into in the medical setting. Today we're discussing legitimate medical uses for illicit drugs, in particular MDMA or ecstasy for terminal patients with anxiety issues. We're very glad to talk to you today, Dr. Halpern. Thank you for having me. I'm glad that ReachMD is interested in my research. We're very interested. First of all, tell us and any of our listeners who don't know it something about uh, MDMA. Sure. Well, I'll start out by stating that the federal government doesn't fund research looking into the therapeutic applications of these drugs. We have to try to raise uh, funds from you know, potentially the listeners of the show because it's not at a stage that we could reasonably submit it into the National Institutes of Health system and have a good chance of getting funded. But if we do show compelling and promising and hopeful results, obviously we will submit into that system, and looking at um, then uh, the drug MDMA for assisting in psychotherapy for people dying of cancer, if this truly helps people reduce their dependence on the current standard of care, which can include going into twilight using opiates uh, too frequently, and the use of sedative hypnotics uh, that cause verbal memory problems and other memory problems and unsteady gait with chronic use, and I'm speaking of are benzodiazepines like Valium and Ativan, these types of medications, well, that could be quite important and we could eventually get funding for it. It's also important for listeners to know that this is not research with the illicit drug MDMA. Uh, Sold on the street, MDMA is often called ecstasy. That's illicit distribution and use. But drugs that are placed into the Schedule I category of the controlled substances list are approved for research purposes only. And so it is the lawful legal use of MDMA manufactured for experimental use, even in humans, that would be given to our participants. So who, who makes this drug then for this use? Because obviously, as you said, you're not buying it on the street. Is this pharmaceutical grade? It is manufactured by a Schedule One registrant um, for the manufacture of MDMA. And a lot was manufactured more than 20 years ago for human experimentation has been made freely available for research in the United States since. And so it's the same MDMA that's been used for imaging studies funded by the government and a variety of other basic science type of projects. 
So how did you get involved in its possible medical uses? What led you into this? My area of expertise is looking at how people are affected by hallucinogens. And I've been funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse looking at the long-term neurocognitive consequences of taking ritual peyote by Native Americans who participate in the Native American church, the largest faith of Native Americans, and peyote contains Schedule One mescaline, a hallucinogen, and I currently have a NIDA grant looking at the long-term consequences of ecstasy abuse, actually, too. And we recruit people who've primarily, if not exclusively, been abusing what they think is ecstasy rather than trying to recruit from polydrug abusers to try to fix some of the content in the literature of neuroscience and drug addiction about whether there are long-term consequences from this type of abusive stuff. I'm interested in general in how hallucinogens affect people, and it's quite unusual to hear people say in, in these interviews, yeah, I don't take ecstasy anymore. I don't want to spend the money on it. It caused problems with my family. It caused problems for me. I have new responsibilities. So I'm not doing it anymore. But, you know, it, it really had a profound effect on me when I, the first times I did that. And I think mean, it helped my life. I've never heard somebody who's struggling with heroin addiction say such a thing to me. I've never heard alcoholics describe their pathologic use of alcohol as being something that was actually transformative in a positive way for them. So that was part of the window that opened up for you in talking to these people? Sure. And just to be a curious scientist, well, what's that about? And we're not talking about developing a 10th generation cephalosporin antibiotic. These are big questions still that remain in psychiatry. And the studies are, are hopefully important reasons to put everybody through the stress of learning about this. Uh, I don't believe it sends any mixed message to say that we want to do quality research that truly answers some of these questions that have been described by users and others that sound like it could be quite valuable for all of us in allopathic medicine. So how do you recruit for a trial like this? What problems have you had or challenges? The biggest challenge has certainly been to satisfy all of the regulatory hurdles to gain uh, the proper approvals and to have a well-crafted study that meets the needs of the ethical boards that review this type of study. But to actually recruit people, what we're doing is we're specifically looking for patients from just within the medical oncology group practice at the Leahy Clinic Medical Center in uh, Burlington, Mass. And one of our co-investigators is an oncologist there. And the inclusion-exclusion criteria that we initially had approved were so restrictive that the people who would qualify actually were dying too soon to be screened. So we needed to revise our protocol to enable us to have a much larger population to um, recruit from. And that to go through all of the approval process again for doing that it takes some time. And so we're just now screening people under the new criteria. And I'm hopeful that that means the study is is starting soon since it's fully active and we're starting to evaluate people. It's still, it's slow and careful. We have to also recognize that uh, these are people who are struggling with end-of-life issues, and life is always precious, but if you're aware that you're facing your near-term death, it's especially so, and we really have an obligation to make sure that we're not wasting anybody's time at all. And researchers uh, can want to screen people, but clinicians are going to be protecting their patients to really make sure there's a good fit. And that's something that we'll always face in clinical research, though. Now, the substance is the Schedule One. How difficult was it to get the permission that you referenced to do the study from the FDA and then get drug available? I imagine that was time-consuming? Well, they are 
He said psychogenic medications. I, I suspect he meant to say psychedelic medications, which is also probably a quite a difficult pill for people to swallow. And imagine that it could come to pass that a drug we're most familiar about in these days as a Schedule One drug of abuse could potentially have medical properties to it. So is it difficult? Of course it's difficult. I've completed a, a research fellowship in drug and alcohol abuse and a lot of years of groundwork. But separate to that, no, there wasn't anything I would say that was remarkably more difficult because it's a, you have a procedure to go through because it's a Schedule One drug. FDA requires 30 days uh, for them to respond, and they acted within their mandated time. FDA is a, a very well-run organization and are very efficient and quite helpful. The criteria by which DEA evaluates people for doing research is also published, and in general, they're very helpful people there too. But everybody's going to go extra careful when it is a Schedule One drug. So obtaining the actual medication, the MDMA, we wrote to the same supplier that has been supplying medication for uh, government-funded research, as I mentioned. It was very quick once the DEA Schedule One registration was in place. So it's something that's done in small numbers in the United States. That's not zero. And so the bureaucracy of the government was, I think, pretty well-equipped to handle the request. Part of your inclusion criteria, do these patients have to be refractory to other medications for anxiety or just intolerant of the side effects? Is that required? What's required is that they've had treatment resistance or to standard medication or haven't had insufficient response to standard medication or they're refusing to try a, that type of standard medication. So that's a treatment failure as well. You can imagine, for example, there's a hypothetical case of a man who is dying of cancer, who has two teenage sons, and every time they mention about college, he starts to have a panic attack and leaves the room. And the doctor says, you know, you should go on an antidepressant. Why don't you try Zoloft? Why don't you try um, citalopram? And this patient says, hey, doc, why don't you take the pills? And refuses it. Such a person may be more interested in this study where there's only two sessions where we will be administering MDMA, and this is not take-home medication. It's done in the hospital, in a research setting, so there is zero issue of diversion. I think that's important for people to be aware of. What hope can you give to physicians out there who may have patients that are refractory to other treatments and therapies? They hear the show, and they want to try something like this for their, for their terminal cancer patients or their advanced um, cancer patients. Is this just the route right now for researchers, or is there something that they could maybe grasp a little sooner? No, there's nothing that they can do uh, short of breaking the law. If a patient on their own, however, tells them that they've obtained MDMA, and are going to ingest it. I've heard of some therapists interested in meeting with the patient to try to still help them through that, but it's still a potentially risky from a malpractice standpoint position. But I suppose such a process could be thought out. I don't recommend it because it's jumping ahead of the work that we're doing. As if we wind up showing that MDMA doesn't have any medical benefit. My job is to publish it, and we know it. And others want to label as, you know, uh, advocates of drug use or whatnot. Well, then they'll have to deal with research findings. And if somebody wants to disbelieve them, they're free to follow the methodology and replicate it. But I say that also, though, if we do identify uh, therapeutic benefits from MDMA, and hopefully we can, as a society and as physicians, can tolerate and accept the potential for helping our patients 
with it appropriately. We do not let public policy get in the way of caring medically for people, especially people who are dying. The point of the Controlled Substances Act, when it was set up, it was really important in the debates in Congress to make sure that the regulatory system that they introduced wouldn't prevent legitimate research. This is still an important issue, and the research that was done back then in that era didn't address this particular question, and a lot of it doesn't hold up to the test of time because we have better methodologies now than back then. Thank you, Dr. Halpern, for being my guest today. We've been discussing tomorrow's medicines, medical benefits from psychedelic drugs, MDMA, and relieving anxiety of terminal illness. And I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.